0: When we hear the word infertility, what do we think
1: of? So she and I both have ovaries and uterus, and because I transitioned so long ago, I've had a very long time to think about family building, and I
0: always knew I from very young that I wanted to be a parent. I can tell you what I think we think of because I hear it all the time. It's the career woman, the woman who waited too long to start her family. I had this crazy idea, I was like, I don't know if you'd be into it, but
1: what if I had my eggs retrieved and fertilized and you could carry a pregnancy? And she was like,
0: I'm in. But there are millions of other stories of other people accessing fertility treatments. But I didn't know anybody who had done reciprocal
1: IVF as a trans person and I couldn't find any stories of it. We have to start telling
0: those stories.
1: This is a unique situation. He has two genetic fathers and a biological mother who gestated him. And that's just his story. And so the more we can normalize that, the better off we'll all be as a family.
0: I'm Andrea Sertash, and this is Pregnant-ish, a podcast about modern family planning and the men and women whose journeys to parenthood don't follow a conventional path. These people are generally misunderstood. Their experiences are often left in the dark. Pregnantish is here to tell their stories, stranger than fiction stories, yearning to be told. Everything about the reproductive landscape is changing. The old adage, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby carriage, just doesn't ring true anymore. We're skipping steps or going out of order. The way people build families or get pregnant today isn't so cut and dry anymore. Reproductive tech is evolving rapidly and opening up opportunities for people to start families that would never have had the opportunity just a few years ago. And the way we talk about pregnancy and family planning has done a 180. Things like sperm donation, surrogacy, and reciprocal IVF used to be brought up on the hush, if at all. Now people are becoming more educated and celebrating them. It's become clear that no matter where you are in your family planning journey, you're not alone. There are people out there just like you. You have community. I know because I've been there, and I did more fertility treatments than I ever would have imagined. 18, over seven years, and they were heartbreaking. I could get pregnant. I couldn't stay pregnant. I knew at 14 years old that I may have an issue with fertility when a doctor told me I had something called endometriosis, but I just never imagined the lengths I had to go to. And truly, it was the hardest thing I have ever been through. My body was bruised from unlimited fertility shots, but I'll tell you, my heart was much more bruised. I now have a 10-month-old baby who I look at in complete awe. She was brought into my life in year 8 of trying to have a baby my first cousin carried her. She was my gestational carrier. And I'm forever grateful for reproductive medicine and the opportunities it brings people like me. Whenever I tell people my story, I hear a story. I hear about their best friend, their coworker, their neighbor, themselves. I started this podcast to shed light on these stories, the stories of modern family building. I understand this and I understand why we need to elevate this conversation. And that's why we wanted to kick off Pregnantish with the story you're about to hear. Seth is a transgender man who went through IVF, reciprocal IVF, with his wife. When Seth was going on his own path to parenthood, he couldn't find anyone who had experienced what he was going through. There may have been people out there like him, but they weren't sharing their stories. Seth, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, why you're here? Gosh, that's a big
1: question. Um, I'm uh, here mostly because I'm a dad at this point and to talk to you about how I got there. But um, for us, it was a really interesting process because I'm a transgender man. I transitioned from uh, female to male about 15 or 16 years ago. Um, And when my wife and I decided to conceive, we had to kind of navigate that. Um, And so I guess I'm here to talk to you about that. Is your wife, was she born a a woman or did she transition? Uh, My wife is cisgender, which means that she identifies with the um, sex she was assigned at birth. So she and I both have um, ovaries and uterus. And I, because I transitioned so long ago, I've had a very long time time to think about um, family building. And honestly, it was one of the things that um, delayed my transition for a long time. At that time, it was very much the implication that you you didn't get to keep your fertility if you transitioned. Like nobody talked about it. There was no expectation that you would do that. And in fact, many states until very recently required sterilization um, to change your documentation. So 15 years ago, nobody was talking about fertility, and I always knew I, from very young, that I wanted to be a parent. Um, and I had this idea many years ago, kind of just thinking about it where I was like, well, you know, if I have eggs and I know I'm going to be partnered with someone who has a uterus, my partner could carry my baby. And it seemed like just a crazy pipe dream, like no way could I afford it. What were the chances I was going to meet someone who would be into that? Um, And then when my wife and I started dating, we had been friends for 10 years at that point. So we'd covered pretty much every topic possible. And really the first, very first night that we were together, we were kind of talking about just what would this look like as a relationship, and what are what does it mean, you know? And um, and she said, and really appropriately, and I was really glad she said this, she said, I'm just aware that it, it's going to complicate things with regard to having kids, and, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm thinking about that. And I said, well, it will, but I have this crazy idea, I was like, I don't know if you'd be into it, but what if I had my eggs retrieved and fertilized and you could carry a pregnancy? And she was like, I'm in. So it happened. I mean, it was basically a 30-second conversation, and we were like, oh, this is okay. This is how we're going to do it. So then it really became a question of timing. Um, First was, I mean, we had just started dating, and so first was the question of, like, how long do we have to date before we just decide? I mean, this is it. We both knew very quickly.
0: And let's be honest, unlike a, you know, a heterosexual partnership with two cis people, um, that decision is a little different unless they know they have infertility or need fertility assistance. You guys knew going in, this is a huge financial, emotional, physical burden. But how did you know when to start that? Yeah.
1: So that's a great question. What I discovered, so as I said, very quickly, we knew that we were going to be together. And even before we were engaged, I just had made a decision like I'm either going to be in this or I'm not going to be in it. And I decided I was going to be in it. And for me, at that point, we may as well have been married because I had my commitment was made. Um, But before we had gotten engaged, before we had started thinking about getting married, I realized that I, um, I definitely experienced this as infertility as a result of medical treatment. But because we had started talking about having a family and we knew that we wanted to do that, I was thinking about it a lot, and I realized that I didn't want to feel like I was bringing infertility into our marriage, and that if we could go ahead and get this done and just bank some embryos in the freezer, that we would kind of be starting at the same place that other people start, you know, whether they're aware, if they're not aware that they have any infertility, may come up, may not have kids, we knew that, but It felt just less like that was going to follow me into our marriage. Um, Like it almost felt for me putting those embryos in the freezer almost felt to me like I'm not like I had made sperm, but like I suddenly this deficit was not there anymore. I
0: think that's probably the best way to explain it. So even though your infertility situation was obviously pretty extraordinary, it seems like you were actually dealing with a lot of the same feelings that people with medical infertility do.
1: Well, you know, I had a lot of grief um, about not. The, the feeling that I was not going to be able to have a genetic relationship with my kid. Um, I had grief about not feeling like I wasn't going to be able to create a baby with my partner. Um, and just a lot of anger that this, you know, I am so grateful that I was able to get health care as a transgender person and and to get transition-related care. And it absolutely saved my life. But um, it's hard. You know, I wish I hadn't had to. It's like, I think, any other kind of medical treatment, that you're glad you got it, you're glad you're healthy, but it costs you something. Um, and I had a lot of just bitterness about what it had cost me, that it had cost me this kind of path to a family. Um, and so I think I just was carrying all of that around. And, and, and with it, I think what a lot of dudes experience is that kind of, um, that feeling about manhood right that you're not doing or providing or you're you're not you don't have what you're supposed to have as a dude and I was really keenly aware of that I think my path to that was different from a lot of men but I think that most men who experience male factor infertility have something similar to that where there's the kind of emotional stuff just internally and there's the sort of social implication about it so all of that was very much the same for me
0: You said that infertility can really challenge perceptions of manhood. And let's be honest, I mean, your experience with manhood is something a lot of people haven't gone through. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got there about, you know, your transition?
1: Well, so I transitioned about 15, 16 years ago, so early 2000s. And it was something I really didn't want to have to do. I really fought it for a long time. And uh, I thought, well... You know, there are all these ways to be a woman or to be a non-binary person. At the time, the term of use was genderqueer. And I thought, well, I can just, you know, I'll just be my whole self and it'll, I'll just be a complex person. Um, and that, as I tried to make that work, it just became clear to me that it just wasn't enough. It just was not working. Um, and I finally made a decision to start testosterone, which was the first medical step that I took in transition, um, because I felt like I had read everything about it. I had talked to all these people. I, I knew about it. I kind of knew cognitively everything there was to know about it, um, but I didn't know what the experience was. And I thought maybe I could just kind of just do it for a minute and then just be, get it out of my system and be able to go just be a proud person butch lesbian woman or whatever identity I had at that time. Once I started it, it was like, oh, this is, this is actually what, this is right. <laughs> I should be doing this. Um, How old were you at that time? I was, twenty, had just turned 25. Um, and it was, as I said, it was the early 2000s. So it was, um, you know, in some ways it was a very different environment than it is right now. And in some ways, very much the same, unfortunately, we're kind of everything old is new again right now. But, you know, it was not something people talked about. It was not something people knew about. It was you couldn't say, I'm transgender, and have somebody know what that meant in the way that you can now, which, for better or for worse, we've gotten from from media exposure. But it was not understood. It was not talked about. And so it was something you just did very much on your own. And that includes the the medical aspect of it. Like, there certainly are people in parts of this country who have easier access to competent medical care around this, but I was not in a part of the world where that was the case. And really, in many places, even in New York City or San Francisco, people get bad care.
0: What part of the country were you in? Um,
1: rural, <clears throat> semi-rural southwestern Virginia. So um, the city that we live in is about 100,000 people with a metropolitan statistical area of 200,000 people. Um, so it was, you know, I was the only trans person that I knew in person. <laughs> um And I certainly was the first trans person that basically every physician that I saw had encountered. Um, And they had no reason to care about my fertility, really. You know, I think there was sort of this sense of like, well, we're, we're letting you we're letting you transition. I mean, what do you want? What more also, do you want? Right, exactly. What, you <laughs> want kids too? That was the decision that you made. You know, I, I I, think a lot of people, that's still the decision that you make. You you start to weigh all the things in your life, right? Like, what's it going to cost me to lose my family? What's it going to cost me to lose my fertility? What's it going to cost me if I lose my employment? And unfortunately, honestly, none of those things are really protected anymore now than they were then. But you do sort of, you just weigh everything and you get to a point where, you realize that all of all of the possible costs are worth it because there's only one way to move forward. And that was definitely was the case for me. But I grieved deeply. And fortunately, the universe had already placed in front of me the person who, um, who was the answer to that concern. But, you know, as I said, we were friends for a long time and it didn't change because I was kind of, I just sort of was resolved to die a confirmed bachelor. And so to have First of all, that relationship appear. And then secondly, someone who so immediately was like, yes, let's build our family this way and was just so on board for it. There was never the sense that this was my fault or I had caused this problem or if it weren't for me, we wouldn't be going through all of this. Like
0: there was no sense of that. What I love about your, there's a lot that's so interesting about your story, but what I really love is that you envisioned this hard-to-reach, hard-to-imagine in rural America um, possibility of retrieving your eggs, living as a, you know, strong man, married to a woman who would carry your baby, and somehow this started to get manifested, which is kind of incredible. So, Tell me about when you guys made that appointment at a fertility clinic and what oh. happened.
1: Well, so I think initially we went to a clinic that was local to us and um, found out surprisingly that nobody local to us actually does IVF. They do IUI, but there's nobody in our city that does IVF. For you those who to... don't
0: know, IVF in vitro fertilization, which Seth is talking about, is More invasive, but also more effective than IUI, which is artificial insemination. But so in your area, they only did the artificial insemination. Correct.
1: Um, So you had to travel a couple hours um, to do IVF with a different set of sort of affiliated doctors. We did not like the first doctor that we talked to. We had some friends who lived in New York, and they had been through um, IVF with their family building. And we kind of just were like we'll look at their clinic. And then when we looked at it, it was so much more affordable than anything nearby us that we made the decision to do it up there. Um, and I don't remember our first intake call with them, but what, what I do remember is when they ran the pre auth. and actually I have to back up and say, um, knowing that we were gonna do this, I took a job that was headquartered in Massachusetts because there's a mandate for fertility coverage a commercial health insurance and master that so I intentionally had taken this job and gotten this coverage and we had this intake with the fertility clinic and they did a um, they ran the pre-auth and it came back denied and I you know I was like that that can't be right you know I took this this plan knowing that this is inclusive coverage and then basically from there we embarked on, nine months to a year of fighting with the health insurance company. And the entire time that was happening, I was off testosterone because I knew that I had to stop for a certain amount of time to do the procedure. And then once I had stopped and we were in the middle of this appeals process, I didn't want to start again and then have them say yes and not be able to just immediately roll back into it. You know, I'm like a not a big dude but I'm a dude with a big beard and a bunch of tattoos and my trans history only is disclosed if I choose to disclose it so that's kind of how I'm moving through the world and I'm like menstruating and trying to deal with that in the men's room at the Chicago airport you know Um, so it was just very strange it was very psychologically difficult for me
0: I want to stay on that for a minute because I can't even imagine. I know as someone, me, who went through unlimited cycles of estrogen and all that, you know, you're pumped with tons of female hormones. But you were on testosterone for how many years before you had to get off and then pump yourself with female hormones? Right. Well, so I was on um, for
1: about. 11 or 12 years when I stopped and then I was off for I think about nine months before we started the hormonal prep for the retrieval so it was a lot I mean it was one was just kind of returning to the natural state that my body would be in without um, external medication and then it was like external meds but in the other direction Um, and it just was it it was absolutely as hard as the year that led up to me transitioning which was one of the most difficult
0: periods of my life i can't even imagine being on male hormones for so many years and not only being asked to completely get off of those but then having to shoot yourself up with loads of female hormones and i know i've done it loads of them it must have been pretty intense am i overstating this
1: yeah no i don't think that we're overstating it and and again i'll say you know my experience is not everybody's experience i can only speak from my experience but um in my experience, both as somebody who started using testosterone for completely unrelated reasons, have I've watched a whole lot of other people go through that process. Um, I I do. I mean, it's real. Horm- hormones are real. Um, I think we run into sometimes uh, the, some gray area where what's real gets. Um, Kind of magnified, right? So people want to be like, "Oh, ever since I went on that testosterone, I just can't stop catcalling the ladies." (laughs) You know, it's the testosterone. Obviously, that you know, I don't think it goes that far, but um, emotionally, I notice a lot of differences. Like, I will say when I started using testosterone and then having gone off and gone back on it. Um, really aware of, like, emotional accessibility. Like, when I um, started regularly using testosterone, it was very quickly that I couldn't cry at a sad movie. I mean, at anything, like, anything. Um, and that's a, a, an experience that's reported pretty commonly by people, guys I know. Um, like, sometimes we'll talk about it and it's like, oh, I saw this really sad commercial. Maybe if you watch this commercial, you can start crying, just get a little of that out or whatever. Um, So for me, that certainly was a very real part of it. I think it's hard for me to answer that, to give a pure answer to that question about what was it like to be on testosterone and then go on to all of these IVF hormones because there was so much other baggage associated with it for me. By the time we got to the IVF hormones, I mean, I was just a total basket case already. So
0: it, it because was... you'd been off testosterone right. now for months and months yep. after being on it for what, a decade? For a decade. I'd been off it for so long. I'd been off it because of this fight
1: with the insurance company that really ultimately hinged, although they were not the words that they used, but hinged on my trans status. So it was I was engaged in this unfortunately very familiar conflict about not having access to something as a transgender person. So there was That emotional thing, there was the emotional thing of like moving through the world as a dude who now has the testosterone levels of, you know, your mom. Um, And then at the end of all of that, there was like, okay, and so now we're going to do a bunch of estrogen and progesterone and your trigger shot. And I think, honestly, by the time we got to the meds, it was such a relief to be taking action finally. And as I said, I knew that I was going to do it one time. So by the time I got to meds, I knew this is over in six weeks. So it was hard and it felt crazy, but it – felt that way i think for me more because of the other stuff and like i couldn't even articulate to you what it what those meds did to me because by that point i it just was all done you know what i mean but of course then my wife also uh, to to get receive the transfer she went underwent hormonal treatment as well and like i watched her go through that and that was a very real experience for her i mean it was physical and emotional and all of those things as well. So I I don't know how anybody could possibly dispute that there's not a psychosocial aspect to to those medications and just to our hormones levels in general. Um, But I think people who don't have that intimate experience with it really underestimate what it means to go through fertility treatment because they don't understand that that roller coaster, that physiological roller coaster, that's part of it.
0: Yeah, and I know your your wife probably did progesterone and oil shots, mm-hmm. uh, which um, some of our listeners know are in the backside. <laughs> I don't know if you administered those shots. Um, I'm trying to remember. She had we did some shots in her upper
1: arm. I think we did do some backside shots, and then she had some belly shots as
0: well. It's a lot of shots. It's a lot. Not the fun kind. No. I I actually, my husband always did it, and one weekend he was out of town, and his best friend came over to do it and talk about intimacy (laughs) that I was not ready for. Yeah. And um, my husband was at a bar mitzvah in Toronto, and I awkwardly said, muzzle tub, when he (laughs) inserted me with a... You know, I was just, it was so awkward. I, I think, though, in general... There's such an overlap in your storytelling of any fertility treatment patient, the hormonal ups and downs, the financial, the insurance conversations, the confusion, the, the isolation, the, you know, all these themes you're mentioning, but to add to that, that layer of um being a trans person navigating it when people just don't understand what that is. Well, and and not only do people just not understand that, but I literally couldn't
1: find anybody else who had done this. Like I am really incredibly lucky to have a community of men who are long transitions like I am who I'm have been in touch with and been in community with for many years. And so I knew people who had Carried their own pregnancies, or whose female partners had used donor sperm and achieved pregnancy in that way, but I didn't know anybody who had done reciprocal IVF as a trans person, and I couldn't find any stories of it. You've gone through a lot of procedures, so how much did that actually cost? We will continue to pay for that for a long time, um, but the my plan said that they covered a round of IVF. For fertility preservation for folks who are undergoing medical treatment that would potentially render them infertile, which is like exactly my situation. And the first denial came back, and they told me I wasn't infertile, but that I had to prove my fertility before I could use fertility preservation coverage, which is
0: That's counter super uh, strange. And, and
1: as you know, the only way to prove your fertility is to deliver a live infant. So I don't know what exactly they had in mind for me. Um, but I guess they did some levels testing and they decided that I guess I was fertile. And I had all this documentation from my physicians and from research that I had done that I'd put together. It's like, This is the internationally recognized course of treatment for transgender people, includes cross-sex hormones. Testosterone is a pregnancy Category X drug, which means it's incompatible with pregnancy. I'm following the guidance of my physician. It has rendered me infertile. And we went through either two or three internal appeals with the insurance and then an external appeal to the State Department of Health in Massachusetts. And ultimately, what they came back and told me was that um,
0: fertility preservation is only for people with cancer. Insurance is a little behind here because if you tell an LGBT couple that they need to have IUI, um, try the traditional way before moving on to IVF, Right away, we know that that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So you're already in this frustrating predicament.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's certainly as that's the case for all LGBT people. Um, I think for trans people in particular, because of the medical aspect of it and um, that sort of assumption that well, you you chose not to have your fertility when you chose to transition, I think there is the belief that trans people just don't get genetic kids. That's just part of the trade-off. It's like, if you're going to let us just live like this in society, we just can't have kids. Um, I will say that the plan that denied me that coverage a year later started covering one round of IVF for due to transition. Oh, good. Which is amazing. That is good. I, none of that will impact me. You know, it's <laughs> you like were a it's- little, You were a little too early. Right, I guess. I mean, I think I was right on time because honestly, I think that change was the result probably of some of the noise that I made. And I'm glad that that change happened, but it is deeply frustrating to me that we will, be, we will bear this financial burden for many years. We spend a lot less money on it than a lot of people do. We are probably lower middle class is kind of where we're coming from. We paid $4,500 to the clinic for the retrieval, fertilization, um, freezing, and a year worth of transfers. That
0: is is actually a a cheap bargain basement price. Yeah, unbelievable.
1: (laughs) It did not include medication monitoring, so all of that stuff got and paid medication out of can as well. easily cost five thousand oh, for for sure. dollars for those
0: who don't know, but um, so you're you're looking already at over ten thousand yeah. dollars storage. Uh, of an storage embryo. Yeah.
1: The the monitoring piece of it was very costly for us. For us we had the travel expense, we had lost work time. Um, I would say all told, not just the stuff we stroke checks for, but the lost income and that stuff we probably about thirty grand. Mm. And again, I mean I know that's a lot less than a lot of people spend, but For us, that was was extremely significant. Um, And we kind of just had to not think too much about it. You know, it's like, oh, it's another check. Just write it. Just don't. But
0: with such challenges, uh, battling the insurance, convincing doctors, uh, you know, who had never seen cases like yours, how did you keep going? Uh, Was there any point where you thought we should pursue another path? We should be childless. How did you keep going? I kept going because I had a very clear guidance
1: for myself, and which we adopted mutually. Um, for me, I knew that I could only do it one time, and that was it. And I, I, said that going into it. I said I will do this one time. If we get zero eggs, then we go to the next, the next thing in building our family. Um, but this is, I only have it in me to do this one time. And that, if I had not felt that way, we might have stopped because absolutely one of the most difficult things that I've ever done, but I knew that it was finite. The other thing too, and I think I've talked about this with you before, is that I, you know, people, you hear people going through this all the time and they'll say, it's all worth it when you have a healthy baby. And I knew that we might not get any baby and that it, I needed for it to be worth it to me regardless of what happened. And so I viewed it as an opportunity to maybe have a child with my wife and that that opportunity had to be enough. We were really lucky. We have a beautiful child, but I couldn't, I couldn't set the goal. I couldn't have that eyes on the prize thing because there's just no guarantee. And to go through all of that all the financial piece, the psychological piece, and to have told myself it's worth it, it's worth it if there's a baby. And then if there's not a baby, then what? You know, do I go back and retroactively feel like it wasn't worth it? Is it was it a waste of time? So we really framed it that way that what we were doing was pursuing the opportunity to have a child together with less thought about the child at the end of it
0: that's a really i think for anyone going through fertility treatments and or infertility um that's actually a really smart approach that's so hard for for a lot of listeners who are going through it because we we don't know what's going to happen ahead and um you know there's a lot of puns here we put all our eggs in one basket (laughs) if we do one round but truly and it's labor intensive um all of that but it is true and just to to actually be able to say to your partner, this is for the opportunity, and we're not going to regret that we took this risk. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that's really that's really inspiring.
1: It it's the only way we could have done it. I think that was really clear to me, and I said it so many times while we were doing it. And we didn't talk to a lot of people while we were doing it. It was very isolating. We. Um, I think that's true for many people undergoing fertility treatment. At at that time, I was not commonly disclosing my trans status. Um, so to disclose our IVF experience.
0: It's like a long story. Yeah, it's a, it's a very long <laughs> so story. How long do you have for me to talk and about our home or and, my hormones?
1: Right. And it's, it's just a lot of really intimate disclosure, right? Like it's intimate enough to say, oh, we can't conceive without yeah. help and we're doing this. And then it adds a whole other layer to be like, and the reason is that this dude that you've known for all these years, I'm, I have ovaries, you know, so it, it, it wasn't simple to talk about. Um, I felt very private about my trans status. I still do. I talk about it now because I think there's a desperate need for that conversation and that representation. Um, But at the time I didn't feel able to, to have that be visible and to also bring the IVF piece of it in. So we were, we did not Talk to a lot of people about it.
0: I, I mean, I can only imagine. But in terms of the healthcare providers, how did you talk to them about it, and what do you wish they they knew? I wish in general that all healthcare providers were
1: more competent on treating transgender populations for anything. So out of the gate, it's not just like, oh, the IVF provider isn't familiar with treating trans people. It's like trans people are educate their providers all the time. I made a joke with some buddies. We were camping and we were sort of talking about this thing about having to be the most knowledgeable person in the room. And we were talking about some of the surgical interventions that trans people have and joking that, you know, we'd just be like, oh, just leave me awake. I'll just walk you through it, you know, while you're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because that's kind of how that's kind of how healthcare access goes for trans people. So I knew we were going to be stepping into that. First of all, I felt pretty confident about the clinic that we used in New York, mostly because it's clear to me that it's a business for them. And the money's all green, you know. You know what I mean? Like, money I, is money. Yeah, money is money. Um, statistics are statistics. Like our live, healthy birth is is their statistics. So, I mean, I think I could have been just about anybody or anything and walked in there and, and been treated like somebody whose money they wanted, which is great. Locally, which I had to do, have the monitoring done locally. I was a little more concerned about how that was going to go, um, but I did what I have. I've done for 15 years with providers, which is call the office ahead of time and say, hi, I'm a transgender person. I need health care. Or is your office willing to treat me?
0: That's a really good um, takeaway, I think, for listeners who are going through this, just to be your own best advocate, to be proactive, to for educate, sure. not assume. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of takeaways there.
1: Yeah. And I wish that this weren't the case for anybody. You know, I wish that everybody could just go in as a layperson and say, you're the physician, You know, care for my health, but that it's that's just not the case. And especially, trans people encounter so much healthcare discrimination. So, it was something I already had learned to navigate. Like I long since gave up the expectation that a provider was going to be able to just see and treat me like anybody else, because that doesn't really happen for me. Um, But the office that we went to locally, I was the first trans person that they had seen. Um, They were amazing. The entire staff um, just got it. They never got my pronouns wrong. They never got none of it wrong. The physician was fantastic. So we had a really great experience with them. Um, And then our OB also. We had a great OB, and we disclosed all of our story to him as well just because it, it has an impact on my kids' genetic health, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, on the one hand, I want to say we got really lucky, and on the other hand, what we really got is I know how to advocate for
0: myself, and I know how to keep going until I find a provider who can at least treat me. And, and by the way, Seth, it's not only a good lesson for the trans community, sure. it's a good lesson for anyone navigating access to IVF. And reciprocal IVF, just so we're clear, is one partner's eggs and one partner's uterus. Um, so together, they're creating this right. life. we. we talk about my son as having three biological parents. Um,
1: obviously, I'm his genetic parent. Our sperm donor is his genetic parent. But my wife, having gestated him, is not his genetic parent. But we do think of her as his one of his biological parents. And, you know, it's interesting because I kind of struggled um, with my own just sort of internal terminology for this. Um, I have also been really lucky and I'm so grateful for opportunity to hear adult donor conceived people talk about their experiences and um it's sometimes really difficult to to hear that because there are a lot of adult donor conceived people whose um experiences with this were not good and for whom there was a lot of secrecy i mean there's just a lot of things that i think were starting to change um but i knew before we even started this, that we wanted to be as open with our son as as possible to facilitate as much knowledge about his background as possible. We chose a donor who's willing to be known when my son is 18, which was very important to me. Um, So, you know, I've sort of thought through this and we started talking to my son about it long before he was verbal. I mean, it was in the- So
0: when, so how old is he now and when did you start talking about it? He's three and a half and we probably
1: started talking about it the day he came home from the hospital, honestly, wow. I mean, we have talked about it with him, always, and he um, he's very precocious, and he he seems to really understand this. In fact, I said a while back, I was putting him to bed, and I said something like, "You know, what would you think if Mama and I decided to have another baby?" And he said, "Would we use your eggs?" <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, we would. Yeah, he totally does. He really does get it. Um, And so we have been very open with him about it. And I had to think about how to talk about his donor with him. One of the things that I've learned from adult donor conceived people is that many of them say, that person is my genetic father, not my donor. He donated to you, my parents. He's my Genetic parent, and that is that's legit. That's true. My kid did not sign a contract with that person, Um, and so in thinking about that, you know, I've started thinking, okay, well, this is this is your genetic father, and it made me initially it made me a little uncomfortable because I'm his genetic parent and I'm his father. You're his father, right? You know, and so I'm like, well, I'm his genetic father, and then I just realized, like, well, so he has two genetic fathers. You know, I mean, it's I think that sort of takes. People may be taken a little aback by that initially, but we're both his genetic parents. I'm his dad. This is a unique situation. He has two genetic fathers and a biological mother who gestated him. Um, and that's just his story. And so the more we can normalize that for, for him and allow him to talk about it and feel whatever he feels about it, um, I think the better off we'll all be as a family.
0: Absolutely. Actually, research shows, and you probably know this Mm because it sounds like you guys were so thoughtful in how you approached all of this. Research shows, um, you know, what's normal to children is what we tell them early on is normal. Absolutely. And there's no such thing as normal. Normal is what's normal to everyone involved. So... if you tell a, a child, whether it's a donor-conceived child, an adopted child, just any child who didn't come from man-woman sex, <laughs> right, a natural conception, if you don't put a stigma or shame or secrecy or negativity around that, kids will believe that it's just a beautiful, normal thing. Sure. And I remember when when I was with my cousin, and she was my gestational carrier, so it was my embryo in my cousin. Uh, Before I saw her kids, she said, "'Cousin Andrea's coming over, you know, and her belly's broken, so I'm carrying her baby.'" Her daughter was scared to see me when I came over because she thought my belly was broken. Right. (laughs) So she thought I would just come in and there would be guts everywhere. (laughs) So then my cousin realized, oh, I should frame that a little less scarily. (laughs) So then she said, "'Cousin Andrea's belly's not broken.'" It can make a baby, it can't grow a baby, so I'm just gonna help grow the baby. And I said to my cousin, that's wonderful because not only is that helpful for your five-year-old, that's helpful for everyone I tell the story to. For sure. That my belly can make the baby, can't grow the baby is actually the truth. Mm -hmm. So all all our family stories, if we also don't carry the shame, we don't pass it on. Well, and so that's something that I thought about
1: a whole lot as a trans person, um, and again, my experience, I have one trans person's experience, and certainly I, there are things that I share with other trans people, and there are things that are completely different. So this is not to say that this is everybody's experience. But I, when I was thinking about becoming a parent, I thought, I don't want my kid to perceive shame around this. And it is something that I do carry some shame around. It's, And I think a lot of a lot of people do. And it's not because I think trans people aren't real or we're not. But as a dude, my body is not what I would like for it to be. I have shame around that, you know. So there are aspects of it that I definitely experience and have had to deal with my own shame. And I thought, man, I I do not want to hand that on to my kid. And how do I navigate that? And so I had already kind of started thinking about generational shame and how do we model being shame free but I think as much as that how do we model having shame about something and still approaching it healthily because there's a difference between pretending like oh I I I don't have any shame about this and saying you know what most of the time I feel okay about this but sometimes I really don't and I, I I really have to keep myself in check on that I don't know what it's going to be for my kid, but it's going to be something. But
0: that's human, you know, because like one of my favorite humans can hold two emotions at once. So I can say I'm scared and I'll be okay. Right. You know, I I have some you can say I have shame and I love my family story. It can coexist. Right. 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 And I think that complexity. Well, I think complexity is just what we've had to
1: teach my kid forever you know for a lot of reasons because of my trans status because of his conception story um, because our you know our family is perceived as heterosexual cisgender i identify as heterosexual i don't identify as cisgender but um i do identify as queer but our family is not perceived that way when we're, we're out walking around and so there's a that's another situation where it's like he just we just have had to present him with all of these complexities. And I think that it will make him a more compassionate person. It will help him
0: navigate his own stuff more readily. That's such a beautiful thing. It's like for, for a child to be introduced to that complexity through his own family structure, it's such a beautiful thing thanks so much for stopping by. I, I truly enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot. And I want everyone who enjoyed this episode to tell a friend, tell a friend about the Pregnish Podcast. Subscribe. We have more fascinating stories coming up. Thank you so much for listening.